The following audio is from The Springs Church. More information about The Springs Church is available at thesprings.cc. Good morning, Springs Church. Welcome to each and every one of you this morning in the name of Jesus Christ. And I also want to welcome you not just this morning, but I want to invite you next week to be with us as we begin February, which is Missions Month at the Springs. Missions Month 2020, and our theme this year is Connected. It's based in Ephesians, the idea that we are all connected together in Christ Jesus. And I hope you'll be here. It's a fantastic time. We've got some wonderful speakers lined up all of each four weeks. Speakers who are not only passionate about missions, but speakers who know missions firsthand. People like John and Kelly Osborne, people like Ben Langford, Celeste Dvorak, the head of our missions team. It's going to be a really, really great month for us. And so I hope you'll be here next week as we kick things off February 2nd for Missions Month 2020. I also wanted to take a quick moment and thank a few unsung heroes here at the Springs. First of all, we've got a slide of Landon Beckham's drawing. I believe it should be the next slide. Yes, Landon did a great little drawing imitating our sermon series graphic. Way to go, Landon, excellent. And it reminded me that I've never really publicly thanked all of the unsung heroes who pro bono do our design work for our sermon series. Obviously, it's not Ben and I, uh, at least not me. Um, But there are people that I need to thank. Hopefully, they're here. Obviously, Tim Giddens, Tim Watson, my wife, Laura. We've got Leah Sykes, Micah Frisley, and Sydney Dvorak. So let's give them a round of applause. Thank you so much. (laughs) Grateful for the way they use their gifts to help us communicate our messages here. Before we close out the book of Jonah together, let's go to God in prayer. Lord Jesus, we give thanks for you. We give thanks for the life you lived, the teachings you taught, the death you died, the resurrection that you rose again to new and glorious life and have ascended and are seated at the right hand of God our Father. We praise you, Lord. We love you. We ask a blessing on our gathering this morning. We ask for your Holy Spirit to illuminate this word in our hearing. And I ask you for the gift of preaching yet again. It's in your beautiful name we pray, Lord Jesus. Amen. In 1967, there was a movie released that would eventually become a musical, which would eventually become another movie. It's called The Producers. And it's written by none other than Mel Brooks. And I believe the story is pretty unified across all three And the story is of a Broadway producer who's a bit of a swindler named Max, and he's down on his luck. And then a young accountant named Leo shows up, and Leo and Max realize that a Broadway producer could actually make more money on a musical that flopped than on a musical that succeeded. 
all they would have to do, so they reason, is make sure the musical flopped on night one, and they would have oversold shares in the musical to all these investors, and no one is gonna audit the books of a musical that flops because they assume it's lost a bunch of money, so their reasoning goes, and so it's foolproof. They search for a musical, they find a musical so bad, so offensive and distasteful that they're certain that it is just going to be an absolute failure, and it's a musical written genuinely by a former Nazi called Springtime for Hitler. And so, they're just so certain that a musical this in poor taste that is affectionate towards a historical monster has no chance of success. And of course, they're wrong. On opening night, the audience, which is initially offended, starts to believe that the musical is actually a satire, that they're actually ridiculing Hitler and supposed to be laughing along with it. And so Max and Leo have on their hands not a flop, but a smash hit success. And they have to deal with investors who are now expecting larger returns on their investment because this has been such a hit show. And so based on this idea that they could have a sure flop, Max and Leo are revealed for the petty, selfish fools that they are. And reading Jonah 4 this week, I couldn't help but think of the producers. I couldn't help but think of Jonah striding into Nineveh so sure that he is going to flop this sermon, that he'll be a complete failure, banking on it, and then inadvertently, reluctantly, becoming the most wildly successful prophet in the history of God's people. And so here Jonah sits in chapter four, banking on this failure that has become a success and he is revealed to be the petty and selfish fool he apparently is. So that's where we pick up in Jonah chapter 4 verse 1 together this morning. It says, but this was very displeasing to Jonah and he became angry. This is right after God decides to relent from punishing the Ninevites, and this is the part of the story that if you're just revisiting Jonah for the first time since childhood, you're like, wait, there's a Jonah chapter four? Wait a minute, there's something that comes after the fish and the preaching and the Ninevehs saved? Like, that's not the package deal I usually got in Bible class growing up. And in fact, Jeremiah's storybook Bible that I was reading to him just about a month or so ago, we got to Jonah, and sure enough, it's basically just Jonah 1 through 3. It's a great storybook Bible, but really I can't blame them because that is the nice and tidy package deal, Jonah 1 through 3, and you get to chapter 4, and Jonah is very displeased. Only... The NRSV, the translation we're using, kind of fails us here. Um, it, it doesn't quite get at the gravity, and a more literal rendering would actually read something like this. It was evil to Jonah, a great evil, and he became very angry. What God did in relenting, punishing the Ninevites is a great evil evil to Jonah, and he is livid. 
He's absolutely livid. And so right away we have this question in the text, you know, why is Jonah so absolutely incensed? Why is he so angry that God saved his enemies? And I think there's a few possible reasons. Some of them probably could have a little bit of truth to each of them. The first one being this, God made Jonah look false. God made Jonah look false. He waltzes into Nineveh, he preaches the word of the Lord, this destruction, and now it's not gonna happen. Jonah's a false prophet, right? Jonah shows up and he's no longer somebody whose oracles can be trusted because he said destruction's coming and now apparently it's not. God made Jonah look false. Or did he? Is Jonah a false prophet? Because remember from last week, God does use Jonah's words and they do come true, just not in the way Jonah intended. Jonah meant overturned, destroyed. God meant overturned, transformed. So if Jonah's not technically a false prophet, God made Jonah look foolish. Jonah looks like a fool. It looks like God has pulled a fast one on him, and really, he kind of has. God's been ahead of Jonah seven steps every step of the way in this story, and so now Jonah comes out looking like someone who's been played, looking like a fool. I think there's a third reason that Jonah might be angry with God, and I think that might be because God messed with Jonah's theology. Philip Carey writes, Jonah's is the wrath of a theologian whose theology does not pan out. Right? Jonah thought he had God's word all figured out, all interpreted perfectly, accurately, precisely. Anybody been there? Had his perfect theological system and structure all figured out, and then a crack shows up. And then an anomaly surfaces, and we have to start working through things again and again, and somebody says, well, have you read it that way before? Have you read this in light of that? And suddenly our theology is all topsy-turvy. God messed with Jonah's theology, and he did it with basically a pun. He did it with a double entendre, that overturned word. I mean, that's just mean, God. But I think we should be honest about something. I think we should be honest that Jonah's theology is not completely crazy, right? Like, Jonah, we could charitably interpret it and say that, you know, Jonah's taking God's justice and God's mercy and instead of, you know, mysteriously holding them together or prioritizing the mercy over the justice as God seems want to do, Jonah prioritizes the justice. Jonah doesn't want the bad guys to get away with it. Right? Nineveh is this dastardly place. It's filled with cruelty and violence and injustice. Jonah wants the bad guys to get what they have coming to them, right? And really, the first readers of the book of Jonah, they probably would have been siding with him at this point. 
The first readers of the book of Jonah not only knew that these were bad guys in Nineveh, but they knew that, hey, Nineveh's gonna go on to deport and destroy the northern kingdom of Israel, so not only are they getting away with it, they're gonna go on and do worse things. So in essence, Jonah, he doesn't know it yet, but Jonah wants to be the prophet Nahum. We talked about Nahum last week. He's another one of the minor prophets who gets to go preach to Nineveh and the Assyrian Empire. And Nahum starts off his book with this announcing God's judgment and wrath. It starts like this. It says, an oracle concerning Nineveh, the book of the vision of Nahum of Elkosh. A jealous and avenging God is the Lord. The Lord is avenging and wrathful. The Lord takes vengeance on his adversaries and rages against his enemies. The Lord is slow to anger, but great in power. And the Lord will by no means clear the guilty. This is not considered bad news about God's identity. For Nahum, this is considered good news that the oppressor is going to be overthrown. Right, that justice will be served, that wrongs will be made right. So Jonah doesn't know it because Nahum comes about a century after him, but Jonah wants to be Nahum. He wants to announce the glad tidings of God's wrath and judgment against his worst enemies. And so he complains to the Lord. He prays to the Lord, actually, and it's interesting to compare this prayer to the one in chapter two, but Jonah says this. He prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, is not this what I said while I was still in my own country? That is why I fled to Tarshish at the beginning, for I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and ready to relent from punishing And now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. Jonah, apparently, would rather die than live in a world in which the bad guys get away scot-free. And so, Jonah begins to complain to God, to tell God why he did what he did in Tarshish. And We may be able to trust Jonah here, but also he's not a very trustworthy character. So we probably shouldn't take him at his word when he says, this is why I did what I did, right? He might be more like a person who's kind of in the heat of an argument and you know how we'll kind of change our story, our rationale in the middle of it, like, well, you did that and so that's exactly why I did what I did, because you did that. Right? Jonah seems to be caught in the heat of the moment. And he's quoting a passage from Exodus 34. He's quoting when God pronounces the divine name to Moses, he passes before him, and he lists all of these lovely divine qualities. But the funny thing is, is that Jonah's kind of using them as an insult. Jonah's quoting these lovely divine qualities, but Jonah is speaking them to kind of condemn or impugn God, right? He's he's basically saying, God, I knew it. I knew you were going to be gracious. 
I knew you were going to be loving. (laughs) You're so slow to anger and merciful all the time, God. (laughs) Jonah wants to be Nahum. Jonah wants the God who doesn't clear the guilty. He doesn't want the God who's abounding in steadfast love and mercy, especially for his enemies. So God devises a parable. It's kind of a living parable, something that's enacted to teach the prophet Jonah. This is something that God does with the prophets from time to time, and it plays out from verse four to the very end of the chapter, so I just want to read it once more for you. It says, and the Lord said, is it right for you to be angry? Then Jonah went out of the city and sat down east of the city and made a booth for himself there. He sat under it in the shade, waiting to see what would become of the city. The Lord God appointed a bush and made it come up over Jonah to give shade over his head to save him from his discomfort. So Jonah was very happy about the bush. But when dawn came up the next day, God appointed a worm that attacked the bush so that it withered. When the sun rose, God prepared a sultry east wind, and the sun beat down on the head of Jonah so that he was faint and asked that he might die. He said, it is better for me to die than to live. But God said to Jonah, is it right for you to be angry about the bush? And he said, yes, angry enough to die. Then the Lord said, you are concerned about the bush for which you did not labor and which you did not grow. It came into being in a night and perished in a night. And should I not be concerned about Nineveh, that great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left and also many animals? It's a strange ending. That's the last word of the book of Jonah. But God, Jonah's out east of the city now. He's watching Nineveh, kind of going to see what's actually going to happen. And God brings up this plant, this bush or vine or even gourd, it's sometimes translated. But whatever it is, it covers Jonah's head with shade. And then it withers away because of this worm. And... Jonah's pretty ticked. And so God says, Jonah, you're upset about this bush you had for one day that came up out of nowhere. You didn't do anything to bring it about or cultivate it. You're upset about that. You're concerned about it. Should I not be concerned about human beings? You're concerned about a plant that you did nothing to bring about. Should I not be concerned about 120,000 human beings that I loved into existence out of nothing? Should I not be concerned, Jonah? And how does God describe the Ninevites? God says of the Ninevites, he says that they do not know their right hand from their left. Remember, Nineveh, is a cruel, violent bunch of folks. 
there's a lot of injustice there. There's a lot going on. And God says, hey, they don't know their right hand from their left. That's a much more charitable description and approach than we would probably want to give the people of Nineveh. Typically for us, if somebody is not clinically, legally declared insane, right, we tend to judge them as a perfectly free, rational actor, right? And, and we are free. We do have the ability to make better choices. We do know. And at the same time, we're not perfectly free. We don't have a perfect vantage of the entire moral landscape. And many of us do not know that this one bad choice we make today is going to have just catastrophic ripple effects down through the decades. And so, yes, we are free to choose better, but we also don't always know enough, and so we choose poorly. You see, freedom, as I've said before, is not just the ability to choose. True, perfect freedom is to choose well, is to be united with that end, with God, the end for which we were made. Right, so, so true and perfect freedom, St. Augustine talks about Adam and Eve. He says, you know, Adam and Eve, yeah, they were free to not sin, but one day when we are perfectly restored and redeemed, we will be so perfectly free, we will be unable to sin. You see that discrepancy? Right, Adam and Eve were free to not sin, but true and perfect freedom would be unable to sin. We just are so in line with the good that we can see so perfectly and clearly. So God says, the Ninevites don't know. Like, and that's not meaning that they're not culpable. It doesn't mean that they get off scot-free. God's just saying, Jonah, this is my posture to them. They don't know their right hand from their left. Shouldn't I be concerned about them? They don't know their right hand from their left. And really, God here sounds quite a bit like Jesus Christ on the cross. In the Gospel of Luke, what does Jesus say? He says, Father, forgive them. Why? For they know not what they do. That's the posture of God even towards his enemies. There's another story that's told in the Gospel of Luke that's unique to it. Jesus tells it. We've talked about it recently. It's a story about a son who shames his father and takes his money and runs to a far off country and gallivants around and squanders his fortune. And when he's down in the dust and the mud without a penny to his name, he comes back. His father runs out to greet him with mercy, compassion, restoration, and grace. And he throws a party for him. And a little like Jonah chapter four, which we know is there but sometimes forget about, there's an ending to the prodigal son that we know is there, but I think sometimes we forget about it. Jesus says, now his elder son was in the field And when he came and approached the house, he heard music and dancing. He called one of the slaves and asked what was going on. He replied, your brother has come, 
And your father has killed the fatted calf because he has got him back safe and sound. Then he became angry and refused to go in. His father came out and began to plead with him, but he answered his father, Listen, for all these years I've been working like a slave for you, and I've never disobeyed your command, yet you have never given me even a young goat so that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came back who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fatted calf for him. Then the father said to him, Son, you are always with me, and all that is mine is yours. But we had to celebrate and rejoice because this brother of yours was dead and has come to life. He was lost and has been found. Jonah is the elder brother. Jonah is the one who was always faithful, remaining with the father. And now that the Ninevites have returned home, now that the Ninevites have been welcomed with this unbelievable forgiveness and grace, Jonah can't stand it. And he grows bitter and angry and cold. And the sad irony is that the elder brother, that Jonah, the moment that you believe you are the faithful brother, as opposed to those unfaithful ones, is the very moment you become the unfaithful brother. At the very moment that you think God's grace can't extend that far to those people, to your enemies, because they don't deserve it, is the very moment you've destroyed what defines God's grace, which is we don't deserve it. It's undeserved. It's unmerited. And so to hope that the gospel will not find our enemies is to find ourselves in enmity to the gospel. To hope that the gospel cannot reach, cannot find even our enemies is to find ourselves at that very moment in enmity to the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so we're left with the last words of the book of Jonah. It's a strange, jarring, unsettling ending. Because it's this question from God that's just left open. It's never answered. Perhaps because it's a question not just to Jonah, it's a question to us. God is asking us, do you really want me to love even your enemies? Do you really want me to save even the wicked? In other words, do you really want me to be who I've revealed myself to be in the crucified and risen Messiah, Jesus Christ, who says, Father, forgive them. They don't know. And if so, are you willing to follow me down that path? I pray that you would. I pray that you would choose to worship the God who is abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness and to live according 
to his love. Let's stand and praise that God together this morning.